0: Welcome to Zero Sum Empire, the podcast. What am I saying? What do we do?
1: The podcast taking critical census of Shall we
0: take a critical census. Yeah, the podcast that takes a critical census of the roughly seven hundred mostly anonymous American billionaires. Yeah. So wait, so why were you looking at immersive lawn mowing <laughs> uh,
1: videos on YouTube? Well, the, the billionaire that I'm covering today is named John Dare. I think it's pronounced Dare,
0: D-O-E-R-R. Do we have confirmation on that or is that just a assumption? That's just what I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> D- you didn't hear you anybody that- say his name on in any interview context or anything?
1: I'm sure I did. Um... You know, maybe he says door. I don't know. I'll probably go back and forth. It doesn't matter. But but it sounds like John Deere. And I just fell into one of those internet rabbit holes and started watching John Deere videos. I think I was like, I started out thinking maybe I'll find a funny clip for the show. And then I just got wrapped up. And because I discovered this subculture that seems to be actually pretty large. Of POV lawn mowing videos. It's like a real subculture with people who.
0: So, what's the payoff? Like, what do people get out of it?
1: Well, I was kind of trying to figure that out. I mean, some of them uh, I can kind of get down with. They're like, it'll just be a guy or a woman, and uh, like you don't see the person. You, you know, it's just sort of the point of view of someone mowing the lawn. And Uh, And they'll put them to like, you know, chill lo-fi hip hop beats. uh, And like, and that's kind of nice because it's just (laughs) repetitive (laughs) and like relaxing. And like, and I could see that other ones will like, uh, you know, do like dubstep and stuff and try to make it like really extreme uh,
0: but but the, it's the idea. It's just like back, like white noise kind of thing. Because it's not like I mean, there's a lot no. of super insipid stuff on YouTube. But like at least like an unpackaging video, there's a point to like well learning about something you might buy. I'm just tra- having trouble understanding why. Yeah. You watch so this.
1: so I think that the ones with music that I was enjoying are like the. Uh, uh the adulterated version of what it, the purists think it should be because I think the real point of it is that these perverts uh get off on hearing lawnmower engine noises. And what? Yeah. So like the purist ones. So like they'll they'll tag the videos with like raw audio, you know, or like you know, so like engine sounds. No. Like Yeah. Yeah. And so like the people
0: Engine sexual thing?
1: Well, I mean, you know, I, I'm using pervert pretty loosely, but like, uh, here's okay. So tell me if this doesn't sound perverse to you. Here are some comments from a guy. Uh, this video is called Ferris Z1 versus Monster Tall Grass Echo PAS 2620. I guess that's the name of like some machines, but like, he put music over it. He was one of the dubstep guys. So here are the comments in the under the YouTube video first one where's the no music version uh, <laughs> a couple of, unfortunately sound was added I want to hear the mower and edger in action <laughs> Uh, next comment. <laughs> Cut the music. Let's hear the mower. It deserves to be heard. What? Great transformation. I'd love to hear just the machines doing their thing. But regardless, good video. <laughs> uh, love. Well, the... Okay. So it's yeah, like so it just goes on and on like that. My favorite one. Uh, this guy just writes. If that were my backyard, I would be out there all of the time, and it would be perfectly maintained. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, does that not say pervert to you? Like uh, all of that, like, <laughs> what else? Like, uh, just like a weird overinvestment in the sounds that lawnmower engines make. Um,
0: yeah, that's really weird.
1: I never think the internet can surprise me, but then it does. You know, I think I'm like, I'm I'm so jaded. Nothing new can ever shock me. And then I see people... Just pining for engine noise.
0: (laughs) Okay, welcome back. Welcome to the show.
1: Uh, it's been we've well we've had a a bit more of a break than usual.
0: We're trying to stay on top of things, but we're juggling life. Yeah, there you have it. Do you want to talk about billionaires in the news this week?
1: Yeah, let's do it.
2: Billionaires in the news.
1: First up today, uh, a pretty big story. Uh, for the first time in U.S. history uh, billionaires paid a lower tax rate than the working class. Um,
0: and, uh, so can we talk about how we came up with this number? I mean, we're working from a Washington post article, right?
1: Well, yeah. Um, and the Washington post article that, that I sent you, I mean, there was a New York times article sort of all over the place this week. And, and what they're doing is taking it from, uh, a book that was, uh, written by uh, Emmanuel Saez, Ber- and Gabriel, Berkeley guys. Yeah, Gabriel Zuckman, uh, Zuckman, uh, who I think uh, worked with Thomas Piketty um, on uh, something else. Um, but anyway, it was this. It's this book that these two economists put out, and they uh, developed all of these complicated calculations to figure out the effective tax rate that the top one percent, top point one percent, top. 0.01% and the wealthiest 400 families paid, um, and uh, the the wealthiest 400 uh, families in the country uh, paid an effective tax rate of 23%, uh, which was a 1.2% less than the rate paid by the bottom half of American households. Uh, which is just
0: unforgivable by any sort of assessment. Yeah. Right. I mean, how do you justify that? Yeah. Does one make an attempt to justify it?
1: Uh, well, I mean, you know, the billionaires are obviously job creators, right? So none of us would have jobs, uh, if it wasn't for that massive concentration of wealth and
0: and (laughs) they don't need to pay less than, I mean,
1: (laughs) no, I mean, they don't need to pay. uh, I think that that's the justification, right? Like, I think the justification is that if you give Uh, At least as far as I understand, you know, what uh, uh, Paul Ryan says, right? Uh, uh, The more money that you give to the wealthy, uh, the more they're going to reinvest that money in capital expenditures, expand their businesses and create jobs. But this
0: is obviously demonstrably horseshit. And the biggest, the biggest kind of thing to think about here that was also touched on in that article is the long history of decreasing tax rates on the wealthiest Americans from the middle part of the 20th century. Yeah, They used to be taxed a lot more, and it's just a steady curve downward to today where it's like the lowest of all time. Is that basically right?
1: Yeah, that's what the numbers say if you're going to trust numbers and, uh, and in facts and statistics. But what I prefer to do is actually just trust uh, Rand Paul who went on to view this week and had some stuff to say about taxation.
3: But we have massive taxes here, but we don't get any free stuff. We don't have free right. health care. Well, our, our public education system we, we, is a problem. We have, we have a, a Seems like the only people a, that get free form, stuff are the diff- very, very wealthy. No, we have a different form of taxation in our country. Ours is much more progressive. So we've taken the poor off of the rolls. They don't pay income tax anymore. Most people below $50,000 don't pay any income tax. The top 1% in our country pay 40%. Our audience that's not true. <laughs> well, uh, the IRS statistics say that the top 1% in our country pay 40% of the income tax and that those making less than $50,000. Donald Trump doesn't pay any income tax. Let me, uh, let me, ask, uh, let me uh, ask you right, this. Right, oh, you know. so, yeah. I mean, he's.
0: I mean, I don't even understand what he's, <laughs> he's saying. he the view audience laughing at him and booing. I mean, um, I understand what he's saying, but it does it doesn't correspond to any of the statistics that I just read in any meaningful way at all.
1: No. He said that if you make under fifty thousand dollars, you don't pay any taxes, uh, and uh, the the top, which
0: is obviously not 1% true.
1: pays an effective tax rate of forty percent. Uh, which, if it was forty percent and not twenty three percent, that would still be an affront to uh, to humanity. Right? <laughs> like that forty percent is still way too low. Uh, but he's also just making that up. It's com- it's completely wrong. Um and uh you know yeah. he he's lying uh and uh or he's dumb I don't know uh what what you know uh, what it is That's insane but, I mean me. even the view audience isn't letting him get away with that bullshit so you know at least uh yeah. at least he's not fooling anybody
0: Okay what else Uh
1: so yeah so that's the first story second story uh are you know I and this isn't even really a story it's really just a tidbit uh because Ray Dalio uh, our friend is is quickly becoming one of my five favorite billionaires. Uh there's a, there's a new story about him that I came across this week. Um and uh I'll read you the headline. This is on cnbc.com. Uh billionaire Ray Dalio, the two things you have to do to get the money you need and the job you want. Uh do you want to guess what those two things are?
0: Work hard and be smart.
1: Uh, nope, that's even more specific than Dalio got. Uh, you have to be creative and flexible. So, uh, that's, so if you wanted to know how wow. to come,
0: that's really yeah. good advice.
1: <laughs> so that, uh, I mean, it's, it's valuable stuff. It's definitely worth, uh, printing that article of Ray Dalio saying, be creative and flexible. Um, like, I don't Jesus. know, you know, I, 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 like it's, it's baffling. So that's, that's it. That's all I had to say. That's the entire story. Story number three, uh, (laughs) Ken Fisher. I don't, I, you know, uh, I didn't hear about this in, in like my regular news consumption. I, I only heard about it when I was doing research for the show. Ken Fisher of Fisher Investments. Uh, you may have heard of them. He's worth well, he was worth uh, $3.5 billion. Uh, however, this week he lost $600 million after the uh, state of Michigan's uh, Pen- public pension fund pulled its money from his uh, investment management firm. Uh, he went to a conference and just started freestyling and uh, and said some things that upset some people. Uh, so I thought I, a guy um, – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just play a clip from a Twitter video that a guy made explaining his experience of seeing Ken Fisher speaking at this
3: conference. It's about a minute, but I think it's worth Okay, worth that sounds
0: fun. Okay.
3: Here we go. All right.
0: Yeah, let's do it. Hey,
3: everyone. It's Alex Schlakin. Just got back from the Tiburon CEO Summit dinner. Uh, so far, I've enjoyed the conference. I appreciate Chip Rome and his team's hospitality. Everything has been fantastic, except for one little thing. And if you're here at the conference, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It was a fireside chat with Ken Fisher. It was a true debacle. It was horrible. Things that were said by Ken Fisher were just absolutely horrifying. He made comments about genitalia, talked about picking up on a girl, uh, and don't show him what's in your pants. He made a reference to Jeffrey Epstein, talked about charities are immoral, uh, mentioned things about tripping on acid uh, and other inappropriate comments uh, at the conference and talking to some of the men and women. They were disgusted by this. The Many of the women expressed to me this is one of the reasons why they don't like coming to these conferences. It makes them feel very uncomfortable. And this obviously doesn't help the situation.
1: So Ken Fisher, uh, maybe a, <laughs> a little bit of trouble. Uh, you know, I went to his Twitter account to see if uh, if he had tweeted an apology out or anything. Uh, he hasn't. He's maintaining complete radio silence. Uh, his last tweet is uh, October 7th, the day before the conference. And I'll just read it. Uh, he tweeted, quote for the day. The most important quality for an investor is temperament, not intellect. Warren Buffett. Uh, so uh, that was that was the last thing he had to say before he closed. Good shop. night.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: Yeah, it's so good. Um Terrible person. Uh, so the last uh, the last thing for in the news today that I wanted to talk about is uh, <clears throat> you sent me this. And so I think you know a little bit more about it than I do. Uh, the Wealth X Billionaire Census. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, we describe our show as um, uh, being a, a census of billionaires. And uh, we kind of upset to see that Wealth X, whatever that is, uh, copied us.
0: Yeah, their, their, their census is a little bit more data driven. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, those of you who are regular listeners and heard the beginning of the show today will realize that we just increased the number of American billionaires by a, a rather large factor. And that had at least partially to do with skimming over the wealth X census and seeing that the new data has come in. Apparently, there's 4% Increase in American billionaires over this last year, even as most countries have have seen a decrease in the number of billionaires. Um, exceptions to that, I think, are Russia, uh, France, the UK, but like China has seen a big dip, other Asian countries, and what have you. Uh, but it, it, it. I guess is interesting to be aware of this document because there's a lot of statistics that are maybe will drop in the future when they're relevant. Here's an interesting statistic. Over half of billionaires globally did not inherit their wealth, mm-hmm. but it's like 56%. <clears throat> and by wealth, I guess they describe that as a significant portion of their fortune or something. I'm guessing that of... The remainder, many of them still had a variety of privileges that many other people do not enjoy.
2: I'm really scared. I don't think we're going to make it. Probably by now, most of you have seen Al Gore's amazing talk. Shortly after I saw that, we had some friends over for dinner with the family. The conversation turned to global warming, and everybody agreed there's a real problem. We've got a climate crisis. So we went around the table to talk about what we should do. The conversation came to my 15 year old daughter, Mary. She said, I agree with everything that's been said. I'm scared and I'm angry. And then she turned to me and said, Dad, your generation created this problem. You better fix it. Wow. I can't wait to see what we Tedsters about this crisis. And I really, really hope that we multiply all of our energy, all of our talent, and all of our influence to solve this problem. Ted's do Because if we do, I can look forward to the conversation I'm going to have with my daughter in 20 years. All
1: right, that's it. Um so I just wow. wanted to uh yeah, so that was a <clears throat> TED talk, obviously. I, I think people probably picked up on that because he uh referred to the, to himself and the audience. Tedsters. Ted, Ted. <laughs> that's hard to even say without cringing, but uh, Tedsters, yeah. Um so that that was uh that was venture capitalist John Dare. Uh, Net worth, $7.5 billion, give or take. Um, so let me, uh, let me do a short bio. This is my billionaire for the week. Can Um,
0: we talk about that conversation a little bit first, or do you want to just launch in? No, let's talk about it. Go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, like, I mean.
1: So I I uh, will say for the listeners, like the first part you heard was the opening of the Ted talk and then the end part where he was crying. The second part was, was the end of the Ted talk. Uh, and that's how he closed and you sort of hear the applause come in at the end.
0: And so you were telling me before the show, he's delivering this like as he's getting ready to invest in some new company and then 2 years later he divests completely or something is that Yeah, idea?
1: so that's that's the story we're going to tell and it's not it's not one company it's many 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 companies okay. um because this is John Dare uh chairman former chairman as of 2016 of Kleiner Perkins uh the Silicon Valley VC venture capital firm uh it is one of if not the most well-known uh, venture capital firm in Silicon Valley.
0: Uh, well, I, I want to hear this story. I'll just say the, there's a couple of moments that struck me in the clip that you played, but I think above all else, I was, <laughs> I was struck by the moment where he was like, you know, talking about the dinner party and how him and his friends were, Discussing the problem of global warming, and they reached the conclusion as a group that it was a problem.
2: <laughs>
0: it's sort of, <laughs> yeah. it's sort of yeah. like that seems a like, little mm-hmm. false. Yeah. All right, listeners, Ch- Chad and I before the show, we're talking about global warming, and we we're really getting into it. <laughs> and we were like, you know what? And, I think there might be a problem. problem. (laughs) This really might be something to think about. It's just like, okay.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're right. That's that's where you're at. That story is definitely bullshit now that you point that out. Um, (laughs) But
0: (laughs) But, uh, why don't you, why don't you introduce us to the guy?
1: Uh, So yeah, he, he was the chairman of Kleiner Perkins. Um, they were they got famous for being early investors in a lot of the big tech companies. Uh I have a list here. Amazon, AOL, Compaq, Electronic Arts, Netscape, Twitter, Nest, Uber, and most famously the one that made the most money was Google. Uh they put 12.5 million <clears throat> into Google and it turned into billions when Google went public in 2004. Okay. Um, so uh, I guess the last bit of bio uh, is Dare started at Intel as a salesman. Uh, he got offered a job at Kleiner Perkins in 1980. Uh, he made a few shrewd calls and then uh, bada-bing, bada-boom, as they say. Uh, I got to cut that out. And then <laughs> – <laughs> I don't know why I said that. I just, like <laughs> <No>. <laughs> All right. And then he became, became a billionaire uh, in venture capital. Um, so, I mean, there's a couple of things. So, you're going to talk,
0: you're, you're talk about venture capital generally or this guy specifically or both?
1: I'm going to talk about him as kind of uh, a stand-in for a larger uh, phenomenon, a larger economic phenomenon that has to do with venture capital. Um, so, but a couple of things specifically about him first, um, he's kind of famous for over predicting how successful a startup is going to be. Like he's, Mm -hmm. he's a salesman. I I mean, that's like his sort of quintessential characteristic. Uh, his, his biggest humiliation was with Segway. You remember Segways, the two wheeled things, right? Do I ever, he, uh, (laughs) he predicted that Segway would reach a billion dollars in sales quicker than any other company in history. Uh, and of course, that's a
0: bad prediction. Yeah,
1: it did not. Uh, it failed. Uh, they, Is, is
0: one wheel the new Segway
1: one wheel. Oh yeah. I've seen those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, you have your hoverboards, uh, your single wheels, I don't know. I mean, I mean they it's seem all just pretty as ridiculous. Yeah, it's all a pretty niche market. Uh
0: anyway, sorry, I just thought it that.
1: But uh the other thing is uh they went on big uh, went went in big on Juicero. Do you remember Juicero? You're not on the internet, so uh you might not even have heard of Juicero.
0: I don't think I have. So,
1: so Juicero was this thing. It was this amazing device. It was a four hundred dollar machine that gave you fresh squeezed juice. Uh, and what you did was you would put a packet inside the machine and then it would, like a Keurig, it would squeeze out juice. Huh. But... Uh, uh, what people found immediately is that you could just squeeze the packet and the juice would come out. Uh, the Guardian described the Juicero the same
0: thing. as
1: the equivalent of two hands squeezing a juice box. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and it was $400? It did, did nothing. That's uh, genius. Yeah, yeah. God, I mean, but it's they so got. so smart. They got busted. Um, They got hammered. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And and so those are two big failures, but his biggest failure was not either of those. Uh, It was with a whole class of investments that are related to the TED Talk we just heard uh, that Kleiner Perkins funded under the banner of clean tech. Um, which is not like a phrase I feel like we use much anymore. We tend to say green tech now, but it sort of means the same thing. <clears throat> there was something that people refer to as the clean tech boom from around 2007 to 2011, uh, and that's when the that's when the, the the period of the TED talk that we heard. I mean, so you know, he was talking about climate change, and he was he mentioned Al Gore's uh, video. He didn't mean the new one; he meant the. Uh, the original. That was from 2007. Uh, And the title of the TED Talk was called Salvation and Profit in Green Tech. Uh, So like around the same time, there are articles coming out all over the place, like uh, some of them that I wrote uh, down, Can Capitalism Save the Planet? Uh, And another one um, I'm going to quote from really quick, actually, uh, from New York Times Magazine called Capitalism to the Rescue. Uh, because it has some of that classic John Dare overprediction of success. Uh, so, quote, uh, John Dare, one of Kleiner's managing partners and arguably the world's most influential venture capitalist, made the case to me in his office one morning in July that there were signs that the multi trillion dollar energy market would inevitably and imminently undergo a wholesale eco transformation. In the view of Dare and his partners, Kleiner's efforts to seed this prospective renewable economy with its investments and the help of its new partner, Al Gore, would help address some of the most vexing problems of the modern era, namely climate change, uh, fuel costs, and energy independence. So this was sort of like the thing that was happening in the zeitgeist around uh, 2007 to 2011 is that people thought that uh, the Silicon Valley model of innovation that had worked so well for software uh was going to work it
0: was going to solve global warming <laughs> yes,
1: yeah right and the story that i 'm going to tell is why that did not happen and could never happen
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a yeah, this is good i 'm on board let's let 's hear it
1: okay cool uh so uh, just uh, quick definitionally, uh, the qu- the clean tech boom was a massive spike. Not just Kleiner Perkins, but VC, uh, especially Silicon Valley VC firms in general. Uh, this massive spike in renewable and sustainable technologies uh, that happened. In 2007 to 2011, uh, just you know, quick note: it is completely over now. Uh, venture capital is not doing much at all, if anything, with with clean tech.
0: And and you're going to explain why that is the case over yes. the course of the segment.
1: Yeah, okay. yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna explain why that is. Um, <clears throat> and uh, uh, but I, it's worth pointing out also at this point that at the same time, right at, at the very same moment that this was happening. John Dure uh, Dare uh, sat on Obama's Economic Recovery Advisory Board. Uh, he, along with about twenty other uh, business leaders, I guess you could say, and uh, and two union guys, Richard Trumka and uh, I think the SCIU, uh union leader uh, as well. Uh, there are like there are two people representing unions, and then like twenty to twenty five, just like. You know, corporate managers. Uh, that was the Economic Reco- uh, Recovery Advisory Board. Uh, uh, Dare had also brought Al Gore on board at Kleiner Perkins. And they and a bunch of other Silicon Valley VC firms, along with uh, large corporations also represented on that board, like GM, GE, especially uh, Dow and DuPont, were actively lobbying the government for new renewable and sustainable energy legislation. So there's a a plan in place. And the plan, first and foremost, was to create a new innovation sector along the lines of the dot-com boom uh, that would produce profit for these companies. And, you know, and I'm going to get a little bit to like the thinking behind that because I, I, there's a cynical way to look at it, right? That, that uh, like global warming... Uh, was not something that they actually cared about, and this was all some sort of like you know economic or financial scheme to to make money. I don't think it's actually that. I I think that that you know a, a lot of these people did believe that they had um, uh,
0: the there was they, some kind of moral imperative, and they could also make money off of it.
1: Yes, and h- hence the name of of Dare's talk: salvation and profit. And and profit. It's worth noting is in parentheses in the title of the TED talk: salvation and profit in green tech. That's like weirdly revealing. That yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> revealing by concealing inside parentheses, right? <laughs> um, and so like, even like uh, you know, I want to say first, like even if the people advocating for uh, this new uh, uh, legislation convinced themselves that they were acting in the public interest. That goal was always subordinated to the imperative to generate profit. Right? They knew the federal government couldn't simply pass new emission standards and then not help fund research into technologies that would help meet the goals that they set. Right So, like you the government couldn't pass laws that we need to meet these new standards and then not help to fund uh, innovation that would meet those new standards, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so what I'm getting at here is is there there's a plan coming together, right? Like a lot of the time, the federal government subsidizes venture capital investment by funding research into innovation uh, in in partnership with VC firms. So the idea for them, for the VC firms, is that you get the government committed to a set of long-term climate goals, and then you have a guaranteed funding partner for big projects that are more likely to succeed because they have more financial backing. Sure, 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 sure. Okay. So uh, according to the article, uh, Why the Green Tech Boom Went Bust in, in Wired Magazine, uh, back in 2009, uh, when the Obama administration got involved in funding clean tech innovation quote the money the federal government delivered dwarfed what vc had put into clean energy the loan guarantee program alone provided a little more than 16 billion dollars for 28 projects the government pumped an additional 12.1 billion into the sector through tax credits all told federal subsidies for renewable energy nearly tripled between 2007 and 2010 rising from 5.1 to 14.7 billion uh, the federal largess also made clean tech look like a safer bet for the VC world. OK, so, you know, uh, uh, that that's like some information on this particular historical moment uh, called the clean tech boom uh, that that we could talk about. And I'll return to in a minute. But like but at this point, I want to get into a, a, a larger point about clean tech and about VC uh, venture capital and about climate change, infrastructure development. Uh, because I think it's interesting. I think it'll be interesting to talk about for a minute.
0: Sounds good. Okay,
1: so like if you look at this from the perspective of a venture capitalist, clean tech is a win-win. If you if you're thinking as a venture capitalist right now, if you don't believe that there's any political future possible beyond the status quo, right? Like if you promote market-driven solutions to every social problem, if you think that's what's what uh, what is correct, then you aren't going to believe that climate change uh, action is possible unless it's also profitable, right? In other words, like, if you want to tackle climate change, you have to make it profitable. There's no way around
0: it. According to this worldview.
1: Exactly. According to this way of thinking, right? And so, like, the the, the story of the clean tech crash is the story of a kind of free market fundamentalism uh, that believes that like that, that really believes neoliberal capitalism is the end of history. It is the final and ideal form of social organization, right? Like it, it, this is the story of being unable to think of any other possibility outside of that. Uh, if yeah. capitalism can't save the planet, then we die, right? Like then that's it.
0: Which is just intellectually very weak
1: it is and, 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 but, like but what i want to get to now and and i think that like in some ways i think that the point that i'm going to make is just just utterly obvious right like there's there's uh but but i also uh feel like that it does not get enough circulation uh in public discourse right so like what that means, right? like what that what what that worldview means is that we are in a deadlock like we are you know we are currently still in the deadlock that led to the clean tech crash of that period and and that that impasse, that inability to think outside of that model of social organization brings up a larger discussion about capitalism and ethics and and I think that we could probably have a larger discussion about this sometime, but I just want to make one point right now, which is that uh, what we've been talking about, like, which we, I think we could call the ideology of capitalism. And and I don't mean that in any complicated sense. I I just mean that uh, uh, in the straightforward sense of believing that capitalism is the best and only sensible mode of production for realizing human needs, right? Like we, I think we can call that the ideology of capitalism, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm on board with That definition. Okay.
1: Um, So if you believe in that, it requires a specific ethical system that contains within it a specific philosophy of human nature. Um, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but like you know, sometimes that's implicit. Like I think it probably is in the case of John Dare, and, and sometimes it's uh, you know people make it explicit, uh, like Margaret Thatcher, right? Like uh, when she said, uh, "There is no society; there are only individuals." That's sort of like making this idea explicit. Yeah,
0: yeah, we know the we know the argument. Yeah, you
1: know yeah. the argument, right? And and so, but like for that to work in your mind, you also have to believe that human beings in general are fundamentally only capable of taking actions to maximize utility and profit. otherwise there's an internal inconsistency in your belief system because if people don't adhere to this strict code of behavior, if they're um, if they're like capable uh, uh, under different circumstances of choosing to act otherwise, then capitalism ceases to be a natural outgrowth of human nature and suddenly appears to you as what it actually is hmm. namely a historical phenomenon that produces and maintains inequality and suffering. That's why John Dare's tears are so interesting to me. Like, I think that it is legitimate for us to talk right now about whether John Dare's tears in that TED Talk are real. Uh, like, Given that he abandoned this vision that he articulated in that TED Talk about investing in clean tech as soon as it became unprofitable,
0: <laughs> well, are his tears? So you're real? just accusing him of fake crying?
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. The exact uh, opposite. I think his uh, tears were real. I okay. think that. I think it's undeniable that 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 was a real emotional moment that he feels tremendous empathy. Like, and not only that, but I also think that he fully understands the stakes of climate, uh, the climate crisis. He knows what the forecast is, mm-hmm. and. And that's what's very weird about it to me. And I think why it's worth talking about. Like when you see that, when you see him cry, like it's it's very strange, right? Because you know, he recognizes that he, that John Dare, <laughs> feels empathy and is willing to make sacrifices to some degree on behalf of the community. That was what he was pleading for the Tedsters to do, right? However, because he has like fully incorporated into himself, right? This ideology of capitalism. uh, He cannot, he is just incapable of recognizing that other people can have those impulses as well, Mm -hmm. right? Like, or or like, you know, to be like fair, maybe he can recognize that some people can, right? Like the people that he knows in his life, like friends and family or something like that. But it's it's impossible for him to imagine that, that people more generally would be willing to sacrifice profit and utility for the social welfare. And this is the like what I wanted to say is that like, like believing in capitalism in that particular way necessarily turns you into a little bit of a sociopath, right? Because everyone who is not personally known to you, like who you can't verify empirically that they have empathy <laughs> and and care about things, right? Who's whose tears you can't see? Yeah. Uh like everyone who's not a friend or fan, like they get flattened out, right? Like they don't hmm. have the full range of emotions that you do or the cognitive capacity that you do. They just become like representations of a statistical aggregate. So anyway, let's get back to the clean tech investment boom. What happened? Why did it fail? Um I, like there were some specific historical circumstances that that led to that first there there was a massive drop in the price of natural gas because of fracking uh oil prices also fell uh venture capital investors soured on green tech because it didn't develop fast enough didn't develop fast enough for them to make them to make the returns they expected uh oh also uh the global economy crashed remember that and yeah. uh, and people had Trouble securing new funding resources, and then last, like the the political climate shifted, and uh, after the Democrats lost the House in two thousand and ten, it became much less likely for them to get you know funding. So like a lot of things happened, uh, but if you go back over those things that I just said, it was because the profit motive was tied to the success of uh, 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 like of all of that stuff, right? Like every axis of failure, uh, fossil fuel prices low return on investment, uh, the availability of credit, like all of those things affected innovation in clean tech because the whole thing was structured around the idea that markets solve problems. Mm-hmm. And when that didn't work, they just gave up, right? Which is the problem that I was, or the, the, the idea that I was trying to articulate before. And, you know, like in some way, those things don't matter. Uh, that That there were specific historical circumstances that led to this not working out. Uh, because on top of those, and, and this is a, a very interesting uh, article that uh, the MIT Energy Initiative published in 2016, called uh, "Venture Capital and Clean Tech: The Wrong Model for Clean Energy Innovation." And what they w- uh, uh, what they conclude is that none of those specific historical circumstances really mattered. There is a structural incompatibility between venture capital funding. And, uh, clean tech innovation. Um, and and uh, So, can
0: you summarize that argument?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll do a, a quick quote. Uh, they say, clean tech companies developing new materials, chemi- hardware, chemicals, or processors were poorly suited for venture capital investment because they required significant capital, had long development timelines, were uncompetitive in commodity markets, and were unable to attract corporate acquirers. As a result, they were more likely to fail, and even those that did not fail returned limited capital to investors. So, what it's pointing to, so, yeah.
0: Can I jump in? I mean, am yeah. I to understand basically that we just need like longer s- scales of investment than venture capitalism yep. is really capable of?
1: Yes. And because the only thing the that's capable of the doing that is a the government. Uh, right. uh, there, There is no sort of Which investment. makes
0: all the sense in the fucking world. You know? Yeah. I mean, if you're talking about a problem of this scale, it's not going to happen in three to five years time segment.
1: No, and it might not even happen in 10 years. And and you know, uh, and this was 10 years ago, right? Like it's very funny, right? Like that this MIT report, like it it seems very obvious in retrospect that the Silicon Valley model of tech innovation was all about like the the thing that the thing the point that they make over and over is that it was all about software, right? Like they were just dealing with software and coding and things like that. But when you're dealing with, tech, not with clean technology, you're dealing with infrastructural development, right, which takes yeah. a lot more startup cash, a lot longer,
2: yeah.
1: harder yeah. to create consumer demand because the products that come out the other end require a lot more money up front. If you're thinking about solar right. and wind and geothermal, um, right. uh, uh, on top of that, of, of course, the innovation window that we talked about of three to five years before they, they, they cut and run like all of those, again, everything that I named, just like the historical circumstances tied to the profit motive, right? So it's not just a string of bad luck. It was doomed to fail anyway, because venture capital just isn't suited to that kind of investing, right? Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. and the venture capital people figured that out like way before MIT <laughs> did, yeah. um, they uh, uh uh you know uh they now invest uh mainly in software, also in uh healthcare technology. Uh John Dare doesn't talk publicly about climate change too much anymore, <laughs> uh although he it still is. is involved with Al Gore's nonprofit advocacy advocacy group, the Climate Reality Project. Uh and I looked into it a little bit, very unclear what they do. However, one of their initiatives is called the guitar of reality.
0: <laughs> the guitar of reality?
1: <laughs> the guitar of reality. Uh, here's how they describe it. Music moves us. It moves us to tears, to joyous exultations, and now it moves us to act on the greatest challenge of our lifetime. Built from a pine tree, killed by bark beetles. Like billions more in forests around the world, the guitar of reality is a symbol of creative renewal, our ability to transform negative experience into something positive and uplifting. Just like great music turns the pain of heartbreak into beautiful songs that bring us together, this special guitar turns the destruction of climate disruption into an instrument for inspiring action. Created with our partners, Jack Johnson and Brushfire Records, the guitar of reality means that now audiences worldwide don't just see climate change happening. They can hear it too.
0: Oh my god,
1: that's what. Yeah, it's that is one of the saddest things I've ever heard. It's just abject resignation in the face of climate change. It's effectively, it is saying, "This is all that is left. Just put like uh, put the apocalypse to music and enjoy the aesthetic pleasure of your own destruction." You know, the the final point that I want I want to make, and and I'm done, is that. You know, a lot of people have been talking a lot about Obama's legacy, right, in the Trump era, thinking about the Obama administration's legacy with regard to, like, immigration, military action, uh, the fumbled economic recovery that just, you know, its main effect was basically to increase wealth inequality in the U.S. Uh, But, like, I think in retrospect, in the long run, the biggest failure uh that the obama administration is going to be saddled with is the, is this is their uh, their hairbrained scheme that partnering with silicon valley venture capital was going to be the way to address climate change and it led to a market crash in investing in clean technology that scared people away so badly that there is still none of it. Hmm. It is it's just not happening. Hmm. Uh, like, you know, like, I mean, it just, like just, it's such a terrible miscalculation, right? And, and, and you know, and, and it's very sad, right? It's 10 years later and uh, and we are far, far, far worse off than we were before. All right, so the last thing we have to do is the David Koch Memorial Asset Liquidation Index. I've thought about this a lot, Joe, and uh, you know, he's not um, a horrible person. He has signed the giving pledge. Uh, he does a lot of philanthropy work. He genuinely seems like he wants to steer his venture capital firm toward investing in businesses that in some way make the world a better place for people to live in, but I'm going to give him a six. And the reason that's a pretty
0: steep rating, given all of those things,
1: it is, uh, it it is a pretty steep rating. And the reason that I'm giving him a six is because I think that the, the, like the specific perspective that he has, right. That, that no social change can possibly take place unless it is also profitable, uh, is,
0: is toxic to humanity.
1: Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Is toxic to humanity. It is the specific thing that we find ourselves confronting at this moment in like human history. Right. Like yeah. that, that it is uh, capitalism versus human survival. And, uh, uh, and he's, he's pointing us, uh, in a He's on direction.
0: the wrong side of that. Okay. He's on the wrong six. side
1: of that. So I'm going with six. Alright, uh well,
0: why don't you introduce us to your billionaire, Joe? Who are you talking about today? Okay, today I'm talking about Thomas Tull. T-U- L <laughs> So, um Were you able to recognize my song that I say? No. no. What was it?
1: Aqualung by Jethro Tull. Bump bum 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 bump bump. Bum,
0: oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Bum, bum. Now I hear it. (laughs) Um, So, although I had never heard of Thomas Tull before we pulled him off the roulette wheel, it seems like I probably should have, uh, because this guy, in contrast to so many of the billionaires that we talk about, definitely does not keep a low profile. Have you okay. heard of him? Uh, no, I haven't. He's a Pittsburgh guy. Oh big, wow, big time, big time. Well, I Pittsburgh haven't lived guy. there in a long time. <clears> okay. <throat> well, there's a lot of information out there about Thomas Tull, and for years he worked in the entertainment industry with really high profile people. I'll talk more about that later. Here's a little bit of a a bio background of where he came from. He is clearly in the mold of a self-made billionaire, grew up in a single parent household. His mom was a dental hygienist, and it was challenging economically when he was a kid. He worked odd jobs to chip in on family expenses from a young age, wound up going to Hamilton College. And played baseball and football there. His career, his business career, is very well documented in a series of interviews and articles over the course of years at this point and has been thoroughly digested by Wikipedia. Among the more notable moments of his rise to billionairehood, when he was in his early 20s, he actually tried out for the Atlanta Braves And while he didn't make the cut, he spent a couple of years working as a scout for the team. And then at a certain point, he wound up buying a chain of laundromats, which is his first big foray into the business world. And in interviews, I, I watched a lot of interviews with him. And there are many that you can go watch if you're interested in experiencing more of Thomas Tull after this podcast, but <laughs> basically everybody brings up the laundromats <laughs> and you can tell that at this point he's like yeah, yeah. pretty sick of talking That's about it. It's
1: a great story it. of you humble know? beginnings, right? Like the American dream happened. Like it's, all you need is that creativity and flexibility and uh, you know.
0: Yeah. It's, yeah, it's kind of like that. I mean, like basically he bought, he, he bought this chain and then his main innovation in the laundromat industry was to vary the price structure so that the cost of doing laundry would vary depending on the time of day that you were doing laundry. Hmm. And this move apparently resulted in a significant increase in in, in revenue or whatever. I heard him talk in one interview about his approach to business and this being sort of emblematic of that. He's like, I'm not an idea guy. Uh, I don't have big game-changing concepts that open up new markets or revolutionize industries, but I can look at an existing industry and tweak it in a way that winds up making it more profitable. So he's a tweaker. Yeah, that's kind of how he like views himself, I guess. Mm-hmm. So anyway, after the laundromats, he wound up making his move into private equity and that led to him being able to to pivot into the entertainment industry and I'll, I'll I'll talk about that in in a minute. I'll just say like there's two big takeaways from Tull I feel like for me if I'm just trying to like describe what kind of guy and what kind of billionaire he is. Uh-huh. And I and I think the first is you know I'm just trying to characterize him in in specific terms. He's basically like a wildly successful Bro, all right, but he's like a liberal arts bro. (laughs) He's (laughs) a (laughs) he's a smart guy, and he he obviously reads a lot. I heard him in one interview talking about how much he reads, not as a way of bragging, but just it seemed very genuine that that's part of like what he does. He seems intellectually curious, but he also presents like a like a dyed in the wool bro he looks like a bro he talks like a bro he really seems to embrace like the bro image or you know he d- he definitely doesn't seem like he's trying too hard <laughs> <You know? laughs> like he he just is thomas toll right. I'm, the- I'm
1: looking up images right now and uh yes i see what you mean well uh, he's got uh, so, he's got even, uh, a resting bro face i mean like he he, he does <laughs> there's no way around
0: yeah, it yeah i mean we'll we'll play a clip of him speaking in a minute so the listeners can get a sense of what he's all about he's
1: he's way younger than i thought what is he like 40s
0: yeah he's like 49 right now well what i was going to say about him is that there's a there's a video of him out there doing the ice bucket challenge (laughs) where brian cranston is dumping the ice water on his head but uh In the video, he wears an outfit that looks exactly like the clothes that Vincent and Jules in Pulp Fiction are wearing (laughs) after they visit Jimmy's house, after they shoot Marvin in the head, and they have to dress up in Jimmy's, like, super dork clothes. Adam Sandler He just looks – yeah, he looks exactly like that. So, I mean, in a way, I got to respect it because, again, he's not trying too hard, and he's just kind of like – he is who he is, you know? Uh, But – it's a kind of performance of masculinity that is is maybe worth talking about. We don't talk about masculinity enough on this show, considering that eighty eight percent of all billionaires are men. You know what? That's
1: a really good point. And yeah, we don't. Uh, I, we've had opportunities to, and some like sometimes we had, like with uh, Jimmy Haslam. Uh, you know, Mm -hmm. I guess it's come up a little bit. I think that, I think that probably the reason that we don't talk about masculinity so much is that most of the people that we talk about are extremely old. Uh, we've had a real string of elderly people lately. Um, in fact, some of them turned out to be dead again, because we're using an outdated list of billionaires, which we're going to fix this (laughs) week. We're fixing it, but, uh,
0: we're getting on top of it guys. So okay, takeaway one: he's basically a big bro, but an interesting kind of variation on the bro theme. Second takeaway is that this guy is basically in the business of living out childhood fantasies in his adult life. Ah, sounds very much like a Jan Koum type. Um,
1: Jan Koum, WhatsApp. He like got rich, and now I just collect Porsches. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I mean I, I would my my sense is that Tull is a little bit more introspective and self-aware. He's an intellectual Jan Kuhn. Yeah, I mean, he's he's the first to like admit and point out how unlikely and ridiculous it is that he's living the life that he's living. It he he knows how to at least perform that kind of self-awareness and humility, and he does so in most interviews that uh that I watched or listened to, but it's, it's one of his talking points, but just to, to point out how absurd it actually is, you know, he, he loves movies. He loved movies as a kid. He winds up opening a production company in Hollywood and started making movies and hanging out with movie stars. He's always been a diehard Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Now he's a minority owner of the team. Mm. He grew up playing the guitar, and now he has a rock band called the Ghost Hounds, which plays like major amphitheater shows and is even open for the Rolling Stones.
1: What? <laughs> you know, so this is the second billionaire that we have covered who has a band that opens arena shows for famous rock bands. I can't remember. Who was the other one? It was one of your guys. Uh, well, This I mean- was early on. I can't remember.
0: If you if you were a billionaire and you could do what you wanted, I bet you would be like, I want to play at least one arena show. Even if it was just like you on the bongos.
1: <laughs>
0: Wouldn't it be a trip I, I would like <laughs> to, to be out there.
1: Like I would yeah, I would like to play the bongos for what what okay, if you had uh if you could play and it has to be a band <laughs> that plays arenas, right? Like it has to be an arena rock band. Uh if you could play if you could just like sort of uh not have to be talented and just like play uh not that you know, not the playing the bongos doesn't take skill. It absolutely does. Bongos are very difficult to play, no doubt. Uh, I, I don't really know, but um, if you could just kind of hang out and, and be part of an arena rock show, what would it be?
0: I would, I would, uh, I would wail away on the cowbell for Stained. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I don't think Stained plays arenas. Uh, weren't they like a one? They definitely have uh, played arenas. So probably yeah, not no, anymore. Not anymore. But maybe if you got me up there on the cowbell, <laughs> maybe.
1: <laughs> His film production studio is Legendary Pictures, right? Is that right?
0: Yeah, I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get right. into that in one second. Well, we can get into it now. Fuck it. Yeah, let's get into it now. Legendary.
1: Yeah. I want to know, know. Did he give us the modern Joker? Uh, because we are. We are in the middle of Joker mania right now. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, I think you haven't seen it yet either. I haven't either. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's uh, uh, every goddamn podcast I've listened to for the past two weeks is just talking about the Joker. We might, we might as well do it too. Keith
0: Ledger obviously gave us the modern Joker. And then the person who's m- m- second most responsible for, for the modern Joker is Christopher Nolan. Arguably the third or the fourth or the fifth is Thomas Tall. <laughs> so
1: he's up there. He, was, he, was, he was involved <laughs> in one the of, cultural phenomenon of the Joker. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. He produced all those early Christopher Nolan f- movies, including Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, Inception, Interstellar. He also, Legendary Entertainment, his company also produced The Hangover, Pacific Rim, hangover. Godzilla, so Jurassic is he, World.
1: Involved in the, the I,
0: I, in the new Joker at all? No, he's so they sold out. Oh, okay. They sold. It's legend, he's done with Legendary. Um, Legendary still exists, but uh, he sold it to a Chinese company and has now mm-hmm. moved on. And I'll talk a little bit more about that.
1: And really, the only reason so. I wanted to talk about the Joker is because um, in my segment we talked about tears a lot, and I want to call the episode "Tears of a Clown." Um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty dead set, dead set on that. So now, that we, like now that we got the Joker <laughs> done in there, done. We move
0: on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. We got a title. That's great. Um, I mean, if you look at the films that he produced and think back on the, the bro identity that I was describing earlier, then I think there's a lot more, uh, fodder for some sort of masculine identity critique of everything that this guy is all about. But
1: yeah, I, we should put a pin in it and and make sure that we sort of foreground uh thinking about masculinity in the future, because it is something that I I now that you mention it, I, I'm noticing that we have not uh talked about enough.
0: Yeah. Okay. So we will. I mean maybe we can talk about it in the context of this next point. Or maybe not, but um Legendary is especially focused on making films that feature heroic narratives and like escapist spectacles. And I have a clip here where Thomas Tull is talking about escapism and his films, and I'd like to play it because I think it'll be interesting to talk about. So if you could cue that up, Chad.
3: Here we go. I would say one of the reasons that we focus on heroic stories at Legendary um, is we we make movies that I want to see, and sometimes in our daily lives... Having escapism and being able to be transported uh, into a place that's larger than ourselves with themes uh, and, and things that capture our imagination, that's what I always gravitated towards as a kid. And, um, you know, so whether it's Batman, Superman, or the greatest uh, superhero of them all, Jackie Robinson, uh, we've really been fortunate to be able to capture that.
0: So I, I I wanted to maybe talk a little bit about why billionaires are uh, are are sometimes obsessed with escapism. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've talked we've talked about this in a variety of ways. I mean, I think that our I think that our culture
1: uh, sort of more generally is obsessed with escapism. It's very weird that we call it escapism mm-hmm. as if it's some sort of uh, uh, ideology, right? Like uh, it's a, it, I, I think that the it's a you know, the reason that we call it escapism is, is because of the kind of reaction formation against just saying that we want to escape because that feels too uncomfortable. So you can't use the word, right? you can't use mm. the word escape, even that's what you, even though that's what you really want to do. Uh, so sorry to interrupt, but, uh, but yeah, I, th- I, I, no, that, I no that's I, like, a great like, point. Like, now that, you know, like now that you're bringing this up, like I, I could, uh, I could completely imagine like a, uh, a, a show where we just talk about billionaires and escape, uh, which would be fantastic.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, so like in in previous episodes, I know we've talked about the like the Bezos thing of 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 being like I don't know what to do with my money except send everybody into space. Right. And so like it's it's easy for me to understand like we've talked about before why billionaires are like imagining escapist possibilities because you know, at a certain point, you know, everyone has to search for a new frontier. You know, and at this point, having like dominated everything that they can dominate here, like psychologically, psychically, it seems like they have to, in order to like achieve some new release, some new yeah. like mode of experience, release. they have to get into space. Yeah. And and here's the here's my question that maybe pushes this conversation just a little bit further. And that's like, is the circulation of a discourse of escapism? in some ways good for the billionaire class you know like like to i want to be clear that like it's not as though i'm totally like anti escapism i like batman <laughs> i like movies that transport me into a different reality i i just wonder like if at a certain level a culture of escapism benefits billionaires oh wow yeah. because it redirects.
1: It redirects you from recognizing the real conditions of your material existence, right? Like exactly. there's always a yeah. retreat, no matter how bad, right. right? I mean, this is a basic Frankfurt school point, right? Like no matter how bad things yeah. get in your daily workaday life, uh, when you go home, there's always a retreat, uh, to, to right. re-energize and escape that fucking nightmare.
0: Yeah. It is a basic, yeah, this is a basic like culture or industry argument. Um, but, I mean, it's specific to – it's playing out in specific ways, I think, with the billionaire class's interest in promoting different modes of escapism. Right. I, mean, well, I mean,
1: that's the you know? thing. I, I'm not sure that the Frankfurt School ever recognized it as an active – like a, a proactive element of hegemony, right? Like that, that I don't even – I don't think that they ever went – were able to go so far as to say that, uh, that the elite classes uh, actually promoted – uh, the idea of escape, uh, as, as an active way, um, to promote, you know, hyper consumption.
0: Yeah. I mean, and I, I don't know that it's in any way intentional, but I, I, I do wonder if there's like something going on.
1: It doesn't have to be intentional. You You just do what works. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, the last thing I want to say about Thomas Tull is that He's moved on from the entertainment industry. And now he's the CEO of Tulco Holdings,
3: well,
0: which sounds... is a holdings company, obviously. Were you going to say something?
1: No, I was just going to say that sounds uh, way more boring than like making Batman movies.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> so <laughs> like, <laughs> basically, this holdings company is centered around the objective of finding businesses who like really know what they're doing and are dialed into a specific marketplace, but would benefit from enhanced data analytics, machine learning, and AI investment. So he wants to improve good businesses through investments in technology.
1: Sort of like a super advanced version of uh, what he did with the laundromat.
0: Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, so uh, that I know of, they have three companies right now. The <laughs> First is a company called FIGS, F-I-G-S, <laughs> which is a medical apparel company that basically sells, as far as I can tell, like designer scrubs. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so like, um, just as a, a sort of aside uh, about how absurd our world has become, uh, I spent a little bit of time on YouTube researching figs. And there is a deep, deep archive of YouTube videos where people unpack, try on, and review figs scrubs. (laughs) Way, way more videos than you would possibly have guessed. Probably more figs unboxing videos than videos of like, all the recorded video footage of like 80% of the world's billionaires combined. <laughs> <laughs> Tulco also owns Edgeworth, a security consulting firm, and Roadrunner, a waste management provider. Healthcare, security, waste management, these all seem like very solid bets. Right. You know, like these are things classic that like,
1: private equity notes.
0: Yeah. Um, and again, he has a background in private equity. So he's kind of getting back to his roots, I guess. At some point on the show, we should discuss the future of AI and machine learning because everyone is talking about yeah. it right now and it's hugely consequential. It's all
1: billionaires care about. Like they're obsessed with AI.
0: Yeah. So in terms of our Coke asset liquidation index, I'm going to say for Thomas Toll, honestly, a two. And it would have been a one were it not for the fact that he owned and built this absurd mansion in Ventura County (laughs) that he just sold for like $35 million that I find offensive. Like Thomas (laughs) Tall, I think you're smart and interesting in some ways, but there's no reason for that house. I don't understand it. It's obscene.
1: I give him a a two. I agree with that rating. That's a pretty good rating. Uh, Not the worst a billionaire by far. Um, Yeah, I'm comfortable with a two.
0: Okay, two. As we always do in every episode, we have to... Pick our billionaires that we will be Researching for the next Episode so Now is the time that we're going to do that Yep Uh, Do you have the roulette wheel (laughs) Ready to spin I I do not I'm looking for it right now I'm locating the file Um, We need that roulette wheel Chad We need that roulette wheel right now
1: Okay Uh, hold on It's coming
0: Everyone's waiting on you
1: Okay, I got it. I got it. Um, Spinning it for the first time. Here we go. Haim Saban of Saban Entertainment. Uh, He is the founder. Uh, You've seen Saban Entertainment uh before on you know various media products um okay that's number one here comes number two number two is number three nine three and that is scrolling down brian roberts uh chairman and ceo of comcast we did cox cable already now we're gonna do comcast much bigger comcast is huge um, okay,
0: I picked last time. Who do you want? Well, you know,
1: you had the entertainment one last time, you had the movie guy. Uh, so I think I'll take Saban
0: and I also had Cox. So, yeah, I you're already deep into the world something. of
1: uh cable television magnates. So, uh,
0: yeah, all right, I'll try to pick up where I left off with Cox. I forget, yeah, i right. out. Sounds good.